Hey, and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I've brought a colleague with me to give a little bit of a, a different viewpoint on some of the things we've talked about previously and to hopefully build on some of the aspects like red teaming and possibly how penetration testing is going to evolve. But before we jump into the episode, I should introduce today's guest. So I have Thomas Ballin with me, who's one of Sakama's senior security consultants. Hi, Holly. So Tommy, tell us a little bit about you. Um, how did you get into security, I guess, is the, the stereotypical question I'm supposed to ask. So similar to the same story a lot of people have told, I didn't go the conventional academic route into, uh, into the industry. I uh, started off in, uh, in high school and then started moving towards sick form and found that, that that route that most people follow towards university and things like that didn't really fit my, uh, fit my interest. So I started poking around. Um, found a job listed for ethical hacker, and it sort of met some of the extracurricular playing around on the uh, on the computer in the background that I'd been doing. Um, I applied for the job, not really expecting much, uh, but when they uh, they asked me for an interview, I um, I went in. I did a bit of in on the company beforehand, and they were so impressed with the uh, the information that I'd been able to find that they hired me on the spot. So Ozin, the slang term there, open source intelligence gathering. So you're saying you. You Googled the company and that was enough to get the job, is that it? Um, so it was a little bit more than just uh, just Googling the company. It was sort of building out an, an understanding of the uh, the structure of the company, who was involved in the company, some uh, some information on their actual website and domain and and compiled sort of a list of, of as much information as they had on their public footprint without uh, on sorry, on the uh, on the internet for their uh, for their internet footprint and um, effectively uh, everything that was passive and non-invasive that I could do to find out information about them. That's cool. As, as strange a thing as that sounds, that's one thing that companies like, isn't it? In a, in a standard interview, you get that question. It's like, hey, so what do you know about us? And and you, by the sounds of things, had a few pages prepared for that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's um, I'd never been to an interview before, so I, I sort of figured it was a normal thing to try and find out as much information as possible. But when they asked, what do I know about them? And I started listing off the names of all their employees and their exact, you know, job balls and things like that. I think they were a little bit taken aback. That definitely sounds cool. Um, so usually when I ask penetration testers how they got into security, it's either through the academic route, which you obviously said it wasn't for you, or sometimes people say things like, oh, they were a sysadmin or a network engineer and they came in that way. But it sounds like you just went straight into ethical hacking. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it was purely... Uh, the, the company that I uh, I applied for, they had quite a good sort of educational program, and they they sort of they only took on maybe one or two people at a time to um, to train up in the uh, in the profession. But they were really sort of geared as a smaller organisation towards um, getting those people up and through the uh, the various different examinations and things like that to be uh, to be more uh, more qualified pen testers. Cool. So when we say you know. Security that obviously covers a lot of things. We've talked about OSINT, but what is it that you're doing now? What What's your role at Sakama involved? What kinds of pen testing do you do? So, I mean, I do quite a uh, quite a diverse range of pen testing from the uh, from the conventional sort of infrastructure consultancy as well as web application assessments to uh, to review their various different vulnerabilities agreed with with the client, where we might actually uh, might actually sit with the client and show them some of the. Uh, some of the vulnerabilities as we go along, 
to um, more of the adversary simulation type exercises where we uh, we do what's called red teaming. We uh, we assess a company uh, their actual resilience to attack by going uh, going through the same processes that an actual attacker would do. Maybe a bit of a bit of phishing, some OSINT, as I previously mentioned. Um, some actual exploitation of services and things like that, as well as uh, physical entry techniques to uh, to really understand their uh, their resilience and how well they'd hold up against a real life adversary. So we've talked a lot on this podcast previously about pen testing, and I gave a little bit of a, a difference between pen testing and red teaming. But in your experience talking to such a range of customers, do you find that most companies just know what a pen test is? And when you say, hey, you know, we, we can do pen testing for you, does that mean the same thing to every company? I think a lot of companies have quite a diverse definition of what pen testing is. Some consider it to be any form of security consultancy. Other people consider it to be a very, uh, very small subset of that where you are, um, as, I, as I briefly mentioned before, sitting with a consultant and that consultant's walking you through some of the uh, some of the vulnerabilities that they might be identifying. Um, really, pen testing has a lot of definitions, but strictly speaking, everybody uh, everybody I think agrees that it's just any form of consultancy where somebody comes in to try and actively break an environment or a system to identify weaknesses. So that's got to be a problem, then, hasn't it? If you if you're working with customers and and maybe some of the words you're using don't mean the same thing. Do you find when uh, when you're working with customers for security testing, quite a quite a big part of that is is educating the customer on not only remediation action from vulnerabilities fan, but just about things like the kinds of testing they should do. Yeah. So one of the uh, one of the biggest issues on that front is that people hear about these uh, these new and exciting services buzzwords. A lot of them that they, uh, they think are the, uh, the appropriate first step that they should be taking in security when perhaps they might not quite be at the, uh, the appropriate maturity level to be receiving those sorts of services. And it's, uh, it, it's really about trying to identify what it is the company's trying to achieve and then tailoring a program that's appropriate to those company needs. So it isn't just uh, jump in and do a pen test. It's a little bit more like that you working out what they need and, and then working out the, the best approach from that. Um, do you think for, for companies, you know, talking about pen testing versus red teaming here, do you think companies uh, move up a kind of maturity scale where they would ever stop doing pen testing and just do red teaming? Or is it the kind of thing where different security testing techniques should be used simultaneously? Um, I think the, uh, the, the two complement each other. So I don't think there's ever going to be a, a scenario where it's appropriate to stop doing pen testing. As companies, uh, t- companies move into more mature approaches, Things like security by design, where uh, where pen testing and things like that form an uh, form a core part of the actual R and D process. Um, things like red teaming will come in at the end to sort of assure and identify whether those processes have been effective and where they uh, where they could be further developed. Um, I I wouldn't necessarily say that there's ever going to be a scenario where one is. Um, essential and the other one is no longer relevant. Cool. So I, I talked previously about uh, what I think the differences between pen testing and red teaming are, but since we've got you here today and a, and a second opinion, uh, what do you think that the major differences between a pen test and a red team is? And, and what I'm trying with that is, what's the benefit of a red team? Why should companies who've previously done done the old, you know, annual pen test, why should they look at red, te- red teaming as a, a new thing? So... The uh, the key difference between the two, as far as uh, 
uh, I see at least, is that um, they're both risk mitigation strategies, but um, penetration testing is about identifying individual vulnerabilities and issues that might present a risk, whereas red teaming is really about understanding um, risks that have propagated, but also understanding your resilience to a different level of a uh, level of threats that might uh, might face you. So when you say level of threat, what, what do you mean by that? Can you expand on that a little? So um, threats are generally broken down into different different categories, or sorry, threat actors are generally broken down into uh, different categories from low sophistication, referred to as like script kiddies, and some uh, some hacktivists, some groups like Anonymous and LolSec might be a might be key terms that people are familiar with to uh, to the more sophisticated nation state sponsored threat actors, things like um, certain certain hostile governments and and things along those lines. And I mean, they use a various different, um, they use a, a lot of different um, techniques to be able to get in. Some of the uh, some of the more sophisticated um, threat actors might use things like zero days, but some of the uh, the less sophisticated threat actors use things like phishing attacks, fairly uh, fairly standard things that a lot of people are more familiar with. And it's uh, it's really about understanding the uh, the resilience to those various different. Um, various different attacks that are employed by these different groups. Um, and the, the importance of red teaming in that sort of approach is the fact that with, um, with low sophistication threat actors, you'd presume that they're always less of a threat. But there are a lot more of them and they're a lot more active to, uh, to most organisations. So in fact, if you're not, um, not really defending against those and they can actually present a much larger threat than some of the more sophisticated operators. So I guess we're leading on to there, it's... Uh... Does every company have to worry about every kind of threat actor? Um, no, there's a there's what's called threat intelligence, which gives us a lot of indication about the sorts of threat actors that are targeting specific businesses and specific industries. It's sort of a informed monitoring where organizations get together and collaboratively share information about attacks that they've observed, which can then inform you on who's performing attacks and how they perform those attacks. So how does that work for a company then that's that's looking at doing red teaming in the future? How does red teaming and threat intelligence sit together? Is that something that the company themselves would go away and do and, and start looking at threat actors and do threat modeling and things like that? Or is it something generally provided by a red team provider? So it um, it can be something that companies do themselves. They can aggregate the uh, threat intelligence data from a variety of different feeds. Um or they can reach out to providers who can who can build scenario-based exercises. Um, there are some good frameworks for those scenario-based exercises, specifically in the financial sector. For instance, the Bank of England implemented CBEST, which, uh, which is mandated for a lot of large financial organizations where they they purely take threat intelligence, use the, uh, use the information on the way that attackers operate, to build um, agreed scenarios, which are then enacted by a red teaming organisation, to uh, to understand their resilience to those specific attacks. Uh, similarly, you've got Tiber, which is a which is a very similar scheme, um, sort of uh, more more shared across not just England but the whole of Europe. Cool. So previously, when I talked about red teaming, I, I made the distinction between pen testing and red teaming as. You generally pen test a thing, an aspect of a company. So you might pen test a, a website or an infrastructure or something like that, and then built up to to red teaming as just being basically 
not a scope-limited engagement where you can do physical or technical or social attacks. But what we're building into here is it's actually much bigger than any of that. You know, that's quite a simplified simplified um, definition there. So with uh, with companies looking at CBEST and things like that, is that something that every company would want to do or is that just financial? I realize the, the financial sector's brought that in, but is that um, the standard at the moment or have, have companies got lots of options there? So CBEST is the... Uh is a sort of gold standard for threat intelligence based um, red teaming at the moment. There's a there's a lot of different um, versions that are coming in for various different departments, sort of built off CBEST. Um, things like uh, GBEST for the uh, the government sector, and um, I, I want to say EBEST. I can't quite remember actually what the uh, what what the um, energy and utilities provider uh, version is. But th- th- there's a lot of different. Um, different versions and the uh, the C star framework is effectively C best but not mandated by the Bank of England so it gives a little bit more flexibility about delivering uh, de- delivering things in the same format but without um without necessarily being specifically focused towards those core financial institutions that the Bank of England are most concerned with so Say a company has been doing annual pen testing for a while. They're, they're just doing the standard thing, maybe some vulnerability scans, maybe a, a pen test once a year. And they're, they're hearing us talk about red teaming and they're hearing all of these new terms like threat intelligence and those kinds of things. Um, how would a company get started? If they wanted, if they came to us and said, we want a red team engagement, we've heard this term, this term it sounds cool. Um, where do they begin? Um, so we'd start with having a conversation with them to ask them what they think they're uh, maturity is and what they think their security posture is to really uh, to really get an understanding of where they see themselves on on the scale of being at risk from the variety of different threat actors that we've uh, that we've talked about um and based off of that we can start to uh, start to form a uh, uh, an understanding also informed by our own internal threat intelligence feeds as to what the uh, what the sorts of risks that they're likely to be facing are and then uh, then discuss with them perhaps specific scenarios or in some cases a more flexible malleable type exercise where we can uh, we can create scenarios as we go and as we deem appropriate to really uh, to really build a um, build an exercise that's appropriately tailored to uh, to their specific risks oh that sounds really good so you can using threat intelligence build a scenario with that company and effectively have them say this is something that we've identified as a risk. Can you assess that? Or alternatively, you can do that kind of wild card of we think we're mature, prove us wrong. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. Oh, that sounds really cool. So for red teaming, where we have a, a broader type of uh, attacks, we've talked about phishing a lot, and I, I think the audience have probably covered phishing and maybe physical access quite quite broadly. But you mentioned uh, ODES, or zero days as some people call them, Um how much of a threat do you think zero days are for the average company? So not the the super mature, not the banks, just the the normal kind of day to day, small to medium. So zero days are, um, or at least um, zero days against core uh, core software and components, things like the micro, Microsoft operating system. I wouldn't suggest are a particularly great threat. It's more when those zero days enter the public domain. I mean, you can take a few years ago when a uh, a suite of different zero days were uh, were disclosed um, by a uh, by a hacking group, and very very quickly afterwards, criminals were able to mobilise on those, deploy some of them, and most famously the uh, 
the eternal blue suite was uh, was used to create the uh, the WannaCry attack, which caused some pretty severe damage, not just to uh, not just to a few targeted major organisations, but to uh, to I, I think it's fair to say uh, not most companies in the world, but at least a a very large chunk of them. I think it certainly worried a lot of companies, if even if they weren't directly hit. But that that's a strong point we've drawn out there in terms of. Those vulnerabilities existed for a long time. A very small number of attackers knew about them. These uh, you know, so-called NSA-leaked vulnerabilities weren't there. So there was some attackers with exploits, but it didn't really become a mainstream problem until the exploit was publicly available. I mean, WannaCry hit, what, 60 days after the patch release? Sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, I think that's probably just a, an ideal answer to the question there, isn't it? It's how much should the average company worry? It's like, well, really... The, the distinction between the vulnerability existing and the working exploit existing is huge. I think another good example for that would be a Heartbleed as well. So Heartbleed existed for like two years in code, right? And then an exploit was uh, was found, an exploit was talked about, we had the the, uh, the disclosure and then suddenly it's a, a huge worry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the uh, one of the key things that, that's difficult to gauge in a, uh, in a conventional penetration test, at least, is the fact that the, uh, the biggest threat to a company is... Um, is perhaps less some of these zero days and some of these sophisticated types of attacks. It's uh, it's about what their capability to mobilize once a uh, a new vulnerability has been identified. Yeah, so this is uh, sadly leading back to basics, isn't it? It's it's things like how quickly can you patch? I guess in terms of mobilizing, though, there's um, there's maybe more to be drawn out there in terms of how quickly companies realize that they've been breached. So that could be. Uh, when a real-world attack takes place, or just something like a red team, um, in your experience, do you do you find that once you've breached the perimeter, that's it, alarms go off and, and the, the blue team come running in, or is it very often that you get persistence and can hold on to persistence in a network for a long time? So um, security, um, security operations, security solutions, um, the blue team, as we refer to them, um, of defenders, uh, are definitely getting a lot better than they used to be at identifying breaches, but I'd certainly say persistence and uh, maintaining moving laterally within the network once a compromise has been achieved is one of the uh, one of the easiest parts of the engagement. Simply because uh, you, if you've uh, if you've identified a vulnerability in uh, in core systems, then you can move very quickly and you can often move quite quietly. Um, uh, hidden in amongst the sort of the the flow of usual traffic, um, so I suppose really it's um, it, it it's varied, but but no um, in, internal infrastructure and uh, and things of that ilk. Once a uh, once a compromise has been achieved, are, are still quite a long way off being uh, being able to mitigate mitigate post compromise. That's that's really cool. Um, so I guess the. The justification there, of course, is it's a scale thing, isn't it? You know, if you if you break into a, an organization's network, and and they're not just watching the perimeter, suddenly they've got to watch internal activity. That that can become a lot harder for them, can't it? Yeah, I mean, there are uh, there are things that that help with that. There's uh, um, there there are solutions companies geared up specifically to the capabilities of being able to identify these breaches that are uh, that are again fed by threat intelligence, so they understand the. Uh, the methods that are, uh, are being used by attackers once inside organizations, they, uh, they're often a lot faster to identify issues within the network. 
than uh, than a more conventional instant response type exercise where you'd start to uh, start to review the logs and see what's uh, what specifically gone wrong in that instance. Cool. So we talked about how a company can get started with red teaming, and we talked about threat intelligence and things like that very briefly. We talked about you'll break the perimeter in some way, be it phishing, be it a zero day, whatever's best around the scenario. Lateral movement to gain access to the important stuff, what I might refer to as capturing the flag, but you know, the whatever it is that that demonstrates the risk to the business. What happens next in a red team? Once you've been successful in some way, what's, what's the next step? So the uh, the the next step in the uh, in the engagement, the most important step is the uh, the debrief. So explaining to the uh, explaining to the client how you managed to achieve each of the steps, and most important of all, how you'd advise that they take that information and go away to build a remediation and mitigation plan to uh, to avoid it happening against a real life adversary. Is that very similar to like a pen test? Then do you just write a report and send it in and uh, you know, clap your hands and then see you in a year, or is it is it different to a traditional pen test? It depends quite a lot on the uh, on the maturity of the organisation as well as the specific issues that have been identified. But no, generally speaking, it's more of a uh, more of a workshop type exercise where there there may be a uh, a conversation to be had with various key players in the organisation at various different levels. Um, talking to the board maybe about value of investment in certain. Um, certain technologies and certain, uh, well, less technologies, um, investment in certain areas of their security, whereas uh, more at a low level, training the security team on things like how they might be able to identify breaches, but also there would be the the conventional penetration test style mitigation for the specific vulnerabilities that were exploited. So just how the engagement is bigger, the, the advice given at the end is bigger then. So not only do we have oh, hey, here's a vulnerability that we found and here's how you should fix it. A lot of it's around the processes then, I guess. So it's things like, you you missed us, you didn't catch us, and, and here's the the clues that you should have been picking up on. Is that it? Yeah, and I mean, you, you build a much more uh, complete picture of an organization when you've got a much more flexible uh, flexible scope of what you can look at. So that gives you a, a better opportunity to uh, to use that relationship that you've already established with the, uh, with the uh, customer, the client network, um, to really advise in a uh, in an ongoing way on how they might be able to uh, mitigate things appropriately for their specific context. Is this the kind of thing that a company can do internally? So I, I mentioned earlier with very basic security testing, things like vulnerability assessments. We can say, oh, hey, you pay a third party, they can do it for you, you can do them yourselves. Is there anything around red teaming that a company can do internally or is it just you need somebody to mark your homework for you? Um, I'd say there are things that can be done internally. There's certainly some uh, some effective platforms out there, specifically for things like um, the low sophistication actions. Uh, that a, a lot of the software and things that we use are uh, are free to use um, and publicly available for for anybody to really pick up. Um, but in terms of the more more complete assessment. It's uh, it's definitely valuable to have it done by a third party, not not just so that somebody else marks your uh, marks your homework, but so that um, you can really appreciate the uh, the impact that somebody who perhaps didn't have any knowledge of your organisation, um, what they're able to do and how they're able to get there, because it it doesn't necessarily necessarily mean so much when you can uh, construct a campaign with quite acute um, information about the uh, about the target. Awesome. So, 
So, uh, yeah, a company should should go to third parties for the really sophisticated stuff. And I guess, what what do we cover under the sophisticated stuff? So we talked about zero days, certainly, and, and we seem to have like a little bit of a disconnect here. Oh, fishing, that's low sophistication. Zero days, that's high sophistication. What else is there? What's in the middle? So um, it, it may perhaps be a little bit of an oversimplification to describe fishing as low sophistication. It's really about the uh, the specific sorts of campaigns that attackers use. So a uh, a low sophistication attacker may use a very very simple phishing campaign, something like a uh, a third party um, Google document, for instance, that they've uh, they've sent out, and somebody needs to uh, somebody needs to log into that to be able to grab some credentials. Those sorts of things are often less successful, and uh, the, the drive towards that is. Um, is less about achieving quite a high level of a compromise. Um, but things like phishing are still used in the more sophisticated campaigns, but they may be, uh, it may be a much more, uh, much more complex process um, of, for instance, a, a malicious attachment, something that's, uh, something that's got a piece of malware in it that'll uh, provide, the, uh, provide the initial foothold. Um, so, so it's not necessarily... Um, right to say that any one specific group of any one specific sophistication level does act in uh, in only one way it's uh, it's really informed by the uh, the context of the company that they are trying to target so your uh, your red team engagement is is pointless without threat modeling then right if you if you don't know what your threat actors are if you don't know who's going to target you but also building on that as you just said if you don't know what their capabilities are then coming up with a scenario would be quite difficult is that fair to say yeah, so so threat modeling is definitely a a key part of the planning stage of um, of red teaming and of uh, any sort of adversary simulation exercise. It's um, again informed by threat intelligence, which is really really at the heart of understanding what's appropriate for the company. Um, but yeah, it, it, building a map and building an understanding of the various different ways that a uh, a company may be attacked is is fundamental to being able to construct the scenarios that are relevant. Cool. So we, we maybe have seen a, a change in industry over time from what I referred to earlier as traditional pen testing, you know, annual security tests into uh, this far more complicated engagement that we've talked about. It's obviously benefits that we've covered, but do you think this will, will evolve anymore? Do you think there's going to be developments in red teaming coming soon? Or do you think the industry maybe is not ready for the next thing yet? Um, I'd say some some organisations are ready for the next thing. Um, security is uh, is at a varying degree of maturity for different organisations, um, and again, it, individual components are, uh, are relevant to specific sectors, and and um, so th- there's certainly a move. I think the the way that it's evolved so far, where it's gone from basic application and infrastructure penetration testing to uh, to that being complemented with red teaming, and now the uh, the more specific scenario based um, threat intelligence led red teaming is the uh, is the right approach. And I, I think the next stage is more uh, more purple teaming, which is collaborative red teaming, really, where not only is the uh, is is the engagement performed by uh, by an attacking team against an internal defense team, but there's uh, there's consultants monitoring on the defense team side as well, who are uh, who have more in-depth knowledge of the uh, of the specific actions of the attackers, and can then help sort of guide and construct ways that the uh, the the blue team, the defending team, can mature themselves. 
Cool. So so those terms there, we've got red team, blue team, we're on purple team now. So the red team, those are the bad guys, right? The simulated attackers. But the blue team is the defensive team, so that might be the, the SOC, the security operations center, or some kind of internal pen testing team. And then this new one we've just mentioned here, purple teaming. So that's a collaborative effort between the two? Yeah, so there are... Uh, the, the... Somewhere between a, uh, a mediator and a referee, really, there are there are a middle party that can uh, can see how both sides operate and can then use that to inform the blue team specifically of a uh, of perhaps how uh, how they should have performed their uh, their elements of the engagement. That's really cool. In in my experience working with companies as well, sometimes. Um, you know, the red team can be can be very focused. They, they, they pick their scenario, they pick their path in, and they start working towards it. Whereas the blue team, obviously trying to find the attackers, they've still got all of the normal internet noise to deal with, right? So it can be really easy to to follow a red herring. You see some attack coming through and think, oh, this is the, the red team, and you go off down there, and actually it might just be something unrelated, it might be a different attacker. So the purple team are kind of like a steering group, is that right? Just kind of keeping them on the right track? Yeah, exactly. Is that the only thing that we think we'll have coming for for red teaming? I know that um, we we talked about Seabest and Tiber earlier. Um, will will there be more developments in terms of frameworks? Do you think? So I, I know I mentioned that um, off the back of Seabest, there were uh, there were other versions uh, versions coming out for different industries. Um, but I mean, be, beyond that, I think there'll be. Uh, There'll be more private drive towards doing those type engagements, and I'm sure they'll uh, they'll drive and evolve other uh, other frameworks that are that are appropriate. I'm personally working on a specific adversary simulation framework that's uh, that's really based around um, less of the strict, rigorous um, pre-agreed scenario-based assessments, but more um, more reviewing what a company's already had in terms of their incidents to be able to understand how. Uh, how they should be replicated in a uh, in a simulation exercise. Oh, that's really interesting because previously I talked about about wargaming and how um, if companies are, are testing their incident response plans on tabletop exercises, they should look at real-world breaches that have happened and that could be some other company in the same sector has been breached or something they've previously seen. But you're saying we should do that for red teaming as well, right? This is something that impacted us before and maybe didn't go so well, so we should... We should play with that in a red team live scenario. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's the uh, it, it. It seems when you say it like the uh, the obvious solution is the thing that you struggle with most is the thing that you should practice most. That makes a lot of sense, and I guess you can see kind of a, a maturity level there as well, where the first thing you could do is sit down on a tabletop exercise and and plan it out, and then you can build up to okay, now we think we're ready. We think we could deal with this. Actually, doing it and and, and testing yourself for real on that. Yeah, exactly, and I mean the the key thing as part of that is you really uh, you really get to grips from the start of the uh, the company's maturity level because if they uh, if they can't answer the the questions to begin with of what the uh, what the incidents that they're facing are and what the uh, what the biggest threats of their business are, then perhaps they're not quite ready for that sort of engagement yet and should uh, should go back to uh, some of the basics, some of the uh, wargaming and things like that that you mentioned to start to understand. How uh, how they should be operating, and once they're uh, once they feel like they're geared up and uh, ready to operate, then uh, then the more red team type approach is uh, is the appropriate way to go. Cool. So we talked about uh, how to prepare for a red team, like how to to get a company to come in. The steps of a red team very very vaguely, but we covered the the, the intent there. And then we talked about the blue team, purple team kind of exercises. What 
next for a company when they've finished a red team? What what should what should they do next? Well, it's a it's an ongoing process. So, so off the back of a red team, in a similar way to a um, penetration test, there'll always be some um, remedial advice to uh, to be taken on board, and that'll uh, that'll work its way up the chain throughout throughout an organisation. Um, but uh, regular repeats of the uh, um, of exercises are, uh, are an important part to make sure that the levels of uh, levels of vigilance and uh, maturity are maintained as the uh, as the attackers mature and also uh, develop new uh, new campaigns and new techniques. Oh, that's the thing, isn't it? We we talked about uh, how does the industry evolve, but of course, a big part of that's going to be driven by the adversaries, isn't it? You know, if you're building campaigns that are supposed to be adversarial simulations, then we need to see what the adversaries are doing. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, it's a, it's a critical component of a security maturity for an organization is their ability to, uh, to mobilize to new threats. Just to clarify on that term that I used there as well, we've talked a little bit about red teaming and we've talked a little bit about adversarial simulation. And I guess we've been using those terms interchangeably, but is there a strong distinction between those terms? Is that a thing a company should should know the difference between? So red teaming is similar to penetration testing. It's defined as a lot of things by a lot of different organizations. Um, adversary simulation is, I think, slightly easier to understand because there are there perhaps um, dictionary words that, that people understand, you know, an adversary being somebody who were... Uh, Somebody who you are trying to battle against, and a, a simulation being a uh, a scenario based exercise. Yeah, getting getting the good guys to play the part of the bad guys, right? Um, I think we've covered, gosh, a lot of terms that some people listening might might not be so familiar with. We've got threat intelligence, we've got threat monitoring, we've got modeling, in fact, as well. Red teaming, blue teaming, purple teaming. It's quite difficult to keep track of all of these terms, right? Is uh, are there other terms that we haven't covered even? Is there anything else we haven't described? I guess I guess open source intelligence gathering was a, a thing we very briefly discussed. Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of um a, a lot of jargon in the industry that that does make it quite um quite difficult to keep up with exactly what's appropriate and uh, con- contextually accurate and again um understanding and drawing parallels between organizations, you know, one might say that they perform regular penetration testing um, one might say they perform regular red teaming. They both might be doing the exact same thing. So it, it is perhaps difficult to uh, to always keep up with uh, with the terms and agree on what they all mean. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a difficult thing, but I guess it's it's just based on maturity there as well, isn't it? It's uh, having that kind of and not not maturity in terms of security testing, but having that relationship with your provider so that they understand the context you're operating in and. And you understand theirs, so you can offer the right advice. Yeah, so actually that's a that's another relatively new term that I think is quite important, is trusted advisor. So organizations are moving away from what used to be the case where they like to jump between security consultancy providers so that they feel like they were getting a uh, um, an accurate depiction to instead identifying those providers that really, really can understand them um, <clears throat> They're uh, they're moving towards organisations that they uh, they know can really understand them because they have truly in depth knowledge of perhaps not just one element of their systems but of uh, of how they operate and how they've operated over the last few years across their entire estate. So that's uh, another difference with pen testing and red teaming, there, isn't it? Because very often, in my experience at least, talking to to companies about pen testing, you often hear things like, "Oh, we we cycle vendors every year" or something like that, or maybe they'll have a pool of vendors. 
And it's also not unusual in my experience to to work with companies and hear them say, oh, can we get a different test of this year? There was nothing wrong with the last one. We just want a fresh pair of eyes. But what we're saying here for, for red teaming is maybe that's not the best approach. Exactly. So, I mean, I... Uh... I always advocate uh, advocate having a uh, having discussion with other people in the industry. If you uh, if you're involved in in conferences and panels and things like that, getting uh, getting feedback from other people and 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 just doing your uh, market research to really understand which providers are providing um, the, the most mature and the best uh, best approach to uh, to the specific type of testing that you're looking for. So a thing just on uh, red teaming and, and how we actually perform that, that, that we haven't covered yet, is um, the relationship between these really in-depth assessments, you know, you know, breaking into the perimeter of a company and, and doing what you mentioned earlier, propagation. What's the relationship between red teaming and malware, malicious software? So how removed is the tool sets that we use from real-world malicious software? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So... Um, it, it really depends on the uh, on the specific software being used, but a lot of the software software we use was either developed by a um, penetration tester and then has since been picked up and starts to be used by some of the threat actors, or the inverse to that, um, some of the malicious tools have then been reverse engineered and been uh, been sort of made inert to then be used in simulation based exercises. So um, I mentioned before some of the uh, some some of the risks to business things like the uh, the WannaCry attack using um, using publicly uh, disclosed vulnerabilities that um, are also used on a day to day basis during red team engagements to uh, to gain the same sort of foothold as attackers. Yeah, I mentioned this previously as well, which is where I got that that question from. Um, looking at data breaches in the last podcast, I talked about uh, Mimikatz for extracting plain text credentials, and I was like, hey, you know what? Malware uses this, and pen testers use this as well. But I guess what I'm driving at with, with my original question there is um, every time I talk to somebody about red teaming, they go, oh, we've got a C2. We've got C2 infrastructure. Well, what's that? What What's the infrastructure that a red teamer uses to deliver these engagements? How does it work? So um, the the infrastructure that's used for red team engagements is, again, it, it's based on the sort of uh, the... Uh, the complexity of the scenario being enacted. Um, but really, it, it, C2, um, command and control programs, is any sort of remote access tool that can be installed on a system to perform operations that can then uh, be used to, for instance, exfiltrate data or compromise other machines. In a red team engagement, we may be looking to use it just to simply prove that we can have a, a, a foothold on target machines. But in more live attacks they may they may use this sort of a uh, software to uh, to move through the network and and do things like the WannaCry attack where a system may be ransomware um the uh, the rest of the infrastructure is it's very very scalable very dynamic to uh, to be um used as appropriate for the uh, for the engagement that's uh, that's going on but all of the tools pretty much are uh, are open source or at least fairly readily available for uh, for anybody to use if they uh, if they so choose for nefarious means or for testing means. I think that's a funny point there to draw as well. It's that um, maybe companies should be looking at this kind of thing, not not necessarily as we said earlier, so that they can replace external red team providers, but so that they understand it. Right. So when you're having those conversations and you sit down and I said, "Oh, tell me about C twos," and of course the first thing is, 
what on earth is a C2? So maybe companies should be looking at looking at things like these frameworks, even if they're not using them, even if they're not doing a C-best engagement, but to understand that, looking at some of the tools that we talk about, if they're open source and publicly available, then maybe companies should start, you know, reading up on them. What, what is a C2? How does that work? So that when they come to sit down and talk to a red team provider, they understand the the specifics, right? Yeah, so so it's definitely uh, definitely good for them to uh, to do their homework and understand really how uh, organizations operate. And uh, there's a lot of conferences where uh, where people really do uh, do talk e- experts in the uh, in the security industry talk about how they operate and how uh, um, how they go about doing a uh, a red team type engagement. But again, it also comes into the uh, the purple teaming that we touched on earlier, where uh, where the blue team can get an in depth knowledge from a uh, from a subject matter expert on these sorts of engagements about what a uh, what an attacker might actually do, and there's, there's certainly uh, there's certainly a lot of argument to be made that some of the uh, the best defenders are also the best attackers for that reason. Awesome. So I think we covered uh, how companies get red teams. I think we talked about quite broadly what what a red team engagement is. But I think one thing that we haven't talked about that I know I will get questions on social media if I don't ask you it. How do people become red teamers? Um, I I sort of did it in the same way as um, I sort of I got into the industry. Uh, I'd done a lot of homework, a lot of research, um, and then just kept pushing and pushing um, the uh, the right people, the people who were performing those sorts of engagements, to uh, to to let me get involved. Um, and at that point, it. it I again started at low sophistication. I started doing basic phishing campaigns um, for security consulting, playing in my uh, playing in my own time to see if I could make them slightly more sophisticated, um, and then moving on to the uh, the more complicated sorts of sorts of engagements because it, it can get very complicated. Some of these um, uh, another another key word for you: advanced persistent threat groups. Some of the more sophisticated uh, threat actors. Um, have been training for years and years and years, and I mean that there are uh, some of the most well-funded government um, organisations in in some cases. Um, so so really, it, it's just about practicing and starting at the uh, starting at the uh, the basic fundamentals, and then uh, then working your way up through to uh, to a point where you can uh, where you can confidently say that you can replicate the uh, the threats that that are being seen. I think that we should probably take a second to talk about as well APTs, advanced persistent threats. So we have threat actors that we talked about earlier. You've got your 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 script kiddies looking for what they can using public tools, those kinds of things. If a company wanted to simulate an advanced persistent threat, how would they go about doing that? Is this a huge engagement where they have to put significant effort into it internally, or is it just a thing they can go and uh, click a button on a website and have an APT jump in the window for them? So advanced persistent threat simulation is it's a challenging one because um, really the most advanced persistent threats are perhaps impossible to simulate. Um, they uh, they compromise right throughout the uh, right throughout the supply chain of an organization. So everything from the hardware providers that give the computers that an organization use to um, using bribery, coercion, maybe threats of phys- physical violence and things like that against individuals they can use in, in some scenarios. It's um, it's government-level espionage, effectively, that they're using in some context. But equally, advanced persistent threat can describe 
some of the uh, some some of the more um, network based um, attacks that might be used, um, and those can be uh, can be mimicked in the uh, in the ways that we've talked about with uh, with with some of the um, threat intelligence has been picked up. So so for instance, there there have been worms in the past that have been identified and associated with advanced persistent threat groups, things like the uh, Stuxnet worm, um, which can then be taken. Um, emulated in a uh, in a sort of more inert manner, and uh, and and deployed by a red team to uh, to gauge how that might affect an organisation. I think that's uh, that's a good point there, isn't it? It's um, because it's adversarial simulation, or we're just emulating sometimes some of the aspects that these uh, these groups do. If there's certain things that we can't do, maybe there's some way to to not cheat, but enable it to be tested without doing it. So we're not going to do a, a physical access assessment. We're going to where we're going to threaten violence against against staff members. But you could, as an organization, look at that and say, okay, if that was done, you know, a how at risk are we of that, and b what would the impact be? You know, if you threaten the security guard with uh, physical violence, what are you going to get out of him? His password. Well, maybe we could skip that step and say, okay, so give us that guy's password and we'll see from that point of view where we could go. Yeah, so, so I mean, referee-type engagement um, are appropriate. It's, re- it's really where red teaming and wargaming complement each other is, uh, is being able to discuss the variety of different scenarios that an organisation may, um, may incur, um, finding out what they feel their way to uh, appropriately deal with it and where possible... Um, simulating it to uh, to identify where perhaps they weren't as resilient to it as they might have thought, um, and where it's not possible, perhaps saying, okay, well, we we know from the war game type exercise that an attacker could achieve this uh, this level of foothold. Perhaps we start there, and we can uh, we can move on from that. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting, actually, because it's the thing we haven't talked about is um, using war gaming as the the entry point to pen testing. So you could. Uh, come up with your your list of potential scenarios, wargame them, the ones that uh, don't go well, there's no point doing a red team on because you know you're going to fail. There's no point doing an engagement if you have no way of dealing with that. And then as you build up the maturity and you think, okay, right, we think we can handle this one now, our response plan seems tuned to it, then you can test it, can't you? Yeah, exactly, because fundamentally I see wargaming as a sort of threat modelling exercise Um and as, as I said before, that's one of the core components to the more mature red team deliveries. That sounds awesome. I think I am out of questions, unless there's anything that you, you want to throw out. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is critical to the evolution of security or these advanced security tests? Uh, to, to tell you the truth, I could, uh, I, I could talk all day on the subject, but I think, I think there's quite a lot to digest there. Awesome. Well, thank you very much to, to Thomas Ballin for coming in. Again, a security consultant of Sakama, but he's one of the the guys in our team who does specialize in red teaming, so it's a really strong area of his. But for you guys out there, I have have some questions for you. Um, Firstly, um, what do you think we missed? You guys have been listening to to our podcasts of different methods of security testing, and we've we've tried to broadly cover red teaming there, but is there anything that you think we've missed? And also, is there anything that we've talked about that you think deserves a deep dive? We mentioned things like threat intelligence, threat modeling. Is there something that you would like to hear more on? If there is, let us know on social media. You can drop us a tweet or or uh, throw us a message and we'll we'll pick those up in, in a future podcast. And thank you, Thomas, for, for coming in and being the guest today. Thank you. <laughs>